You're listening to Liberty Buzzard with Dustin Hammett and Thomas Umstead Jr. Episode 31. I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Umstead Jr. Welcome to the show where we clean up the highway of cultural conversation. It's a messy job, but somebody's got to do it. Thomas and I, in our in our pre-show little little chat, sometimes we get going before we hit record, and we're like, oh, no, we're having a great conversation. We should hit record. And that's kind of what happened again today. We were talking about, bum, 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 the topic of racism, which, of course, is, you know, just an ever-so-touchy topic. And my unique perspective comes from being a United States Marine and then being a police officer. And I was, uh, Thomas brought it up. And uh, I was recounting to Thomas my experience in the Marine Corps about how a lot of times, and this is not an absolute, but based on my experience, the Marine Corps is uh, not uh, uh, colorblind, but it's color deaf. And I was giving Thomas the example of uh, Marines in a combat situation, especially when you're in a small group type setting and, you know, the, the what really matters in a life and death situation like that, and especially in a sparse life and death situation like that, is coming together um, and, and and protecting each other and loving one another and making sure that you all get out of their life. That's what, that's the, the basics of life is what really matters. However, it's not like race in those types of situations is just ignored. You'll see Marines in, in a fighting situation like that. A lot of times, you know, they, they will play off racial stereotypes all day long and, and, and black people make fun of white people, white people make fun of black people, Hispanics make fun of uh, both. And they're just going at each other all day long um, with all these racial stereotypes, but nobody's feelings get hurt. Um, you know, it's just a back and forth like uh, like type A alpha male Marines will do in combat situation. And they laugh about it. And uh, then, you know, the next minute they know, you know, they're, 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 they're finishing up lunch and they're back on patrol again. So it's just not a big deal. So you don't have the hurt feelings from my experience in a lot of ways. Uh, when you have these, uh, when you have these cultural conversations, especially when you make fun of another culture, uh, for, you know, the, the stereotypes that are out there, the hurt feelings just aren't there and people don't get, uh, in the Marine Corps, we would call it butt hurt. People don't get butt hurt about stuff like that because there's stuff to really get worried about, like, you know, getting shot or getting blown up. And that's the stuff that really, really matters. And I would say you have an identity that supersedes your racial identity. Yeah. And yeah, the fact that true. you're a Marine is a bigger part of your identity, especially in that context, right? You're on the battlefield. You know, you leave a lot of your identities behind in that context. And so your other identities are not as attached to you emotionally. Uh, and I imagine that makes a difference as well. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Because in the Marine Corps, we are we are very good about making people value the fact that they're Marines, uh, um, oftentimes above anything else. Um, so, yeah, you're right about that. And, uh, and then we started contrasting this to my experience in the police world, which, you know, in the police world, I became, especially in today's climate, very, very race conscious, um, because I was scared as a police officer. I'm going to be honest with you, everybody out there. I was scared as a police officer to be seen as, you know, you know, that quote unquote racist cop. And it was always on my mind. Um, and so when something like that's on your mind, it's naturally going to make influence the way that you interact with individuals. And, uh, Maybe I was nicer to people of color than I otherwise would have been. I acted differently. Maybe I, maybe I was just, I would have acted the same. And this is a counterfactual, so it's hard to prove. I would like to think that I've acted the same either way, but I was just really, really self-conscious about it uh, because of because of the climate as it was. So um, 
Yeah, so Thomas and I were, were, were batting that back and forth, and uh, I thought it was uh, important for me to get my opinion on it out there based on my perspectives. What do you think about that, Thomas? Well, I think it's fascinating because you've been in, in like the two institutions uh, of the United States government uh, in terms of race relations. You were on either pole, right? There, I don't think there's any institution that's done a better job within integration than the United States Marines. You know, maybe one of the other armed forces will be like, oh, we've done a better job. But I think it was the Marines that integrated first. Um, and the uh, identity of a Marine feels like a stronger identity than being a, a sailor or an airman. Uh, I may be wrong, but I just feel like that's very far over there. And if not, number one, a very close number two or number three to some other institution. And then you have being a police officer, and a police department as an institution probably at least right now has the worst, um, you know, racial um, reputation, right? As every week there seems to be some new story in the news about, you know, a police officer and African American young man. It seems to be like this. It's, you know, it's like a school shooting. It's like there's one every quarter. You, it's the same story, just a different town and different crying people. And it's it's interesting to hear. I'm I'm curious to hear more of your perspective because if it was a bit of a shock going from where people were so comfortable with each other and so cognizant of other identities and what was really important, they could make you know racial jokes without their feelings getting hurt. As a marine, all the way over to being a cop, where even something that wasn't int intended to be um, taken that way can you know, really hurt somebody's feelings. Everyone's, you know, as soon as you start talking to a, an African-American man on the road, everyone pulls out their cameras and starts videotaping you. It's just a very highly charged environment. What was that like switching from the one to the other? It was, uh, it was interesting. And, you know, beyond that, from when I first started policing, um, in 2013 to when I finished uh, this year, the beginning of this part of this year, it changed dramatically and it was all hinged on the Ferguson events and the, the, the national drama that came out of that. I mean, it was even within that simple time shift, it was, it was, it was a, it was a change in the way um, I interacted with communities of color. So um, I, in my first three years of policing, I worked nights and I worked nights in, in a poor area, which was composed largely of Hispanic immigrants and uh, historically African-American communities. So uh, I worked a lot there. And when I first started out, yeah, especially when you arrest somebody, you know, they're mad and they're going to say all kinds of terrible things to you because they're mad. And that's what mad people do. Uh, all the way from, you know, me being called a white N-word to, you know, uh, you know, all the, all the, all the epitaphs you can think of for being a white guy to you being pedophile, you know, any name they could throw at you, they were going to throw at you. And after the Ferguson thing, I, I noticed a dramatic shift. Once you make an arrest of somebody, um, even, even people that were the same color as me, even, even, you know, other white people, they start accusing you of being a racist when they, as they're sitting in handcuffs in the back of the car, because, and this is going to be this, the same situation they're they're mad they're upset they're frustrated they're arrested a lot of times a lot of times they're intoxicated which does not help the, the problem at all but you know they're going to say whatever they can say to try to get you to a change your mind and unarrest them which i'm just going to tell you folks ain't going to happen um or at least to maybe hurt your feelings because that, that's what they really want to do they just they're trying to get back at you because that's at that point all they can really do because uh, they they know that, uh, especially here in the city of Austin, that they can say what they want without any really fear of reprisal or repercussions because there's no law against being a jerk to a cop. Um, 
So yeah, so you, they get they get you in the back of the car and they they start shouting these things at you. I wasn't terribly surprised at the police officer because I I knew the emotional reaction, but I did notice a shift in direct accusations of racism, and I think that was um, I think that was directly attributed to the Ferguson thing. Now, I will give an anecdote about an arrest that I made uh, for driving while intoxicated and uh, be very, uh, I won't give any specifics. I arrested a black man uh, in a parking lot who had run into some other cars and he was driving and he was trying to get away. I had plenty of witnesses. I had all the probable cause in the world to arrest the man for being intoxicated. And to this day, I believe with beyond a reasonable doubt that he was intoxicated based on the evidence that I had, including doing tests and smells and what I saw there as a police officer on the ground. And uh, he challenged it in court and it went to court and uh, he was found not guilty. Very frustrating for me as a police officer. And um, the, the the prosecutors after the fact, they will interview... and. Oh, I forgot to mention an important detail. After I made the arrest, he was saying some nasty, nasty things about me as a human being, about my race, about, you know, just any nasty thing he could say being in the back of the police car. And as I'm listening to this, going down to the jail, I'm thinking to myself, this is beautiful. This is going to get captured. If this goes to court, this proves, hey, you know, this guy's not making rational decisions. You know, his intoxication is leading him to say some just terrible, rude things. But no, the jury said that the terrible, rude, horrible things that he was saying to me as a human being did not have an effect on the way they thought. Whereas if the flip side were true, and you know, I understand this, I'm not, I'm not challenging it. I'm just saying, I'm just announcing a truth. If the flip side were true, and if I had, had uttered as a police officer one insignificant accidental racist remark, I probably would have, you know, been censured as a police officer, possibly lost my job, loss of reputation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those are the kinds of things that as a police officer, they, they're, they're very challenging to deal with. They're very challenging to deal with. And I'll make uh, the last note before I turn it back over to you, Thomas, is that is as a police officer, another uniform talking to the public at large. You know, that's, that's the kind of interaction we had, but an interesting note. Based on my experience and based on, you know, the based on, okay, based on my experience in between police officers, just like in between the Marine Corps, race, sex wasn't a big deal. We were all cops. Um, so you have a black cop, you have an Hispanic cop, you have a white cop, you have a, a female cop, you have an Asian cop, whatever. We're all cops. We're all cops together. Uh, we're all police officers together and, uh, you know, they have that, that thing of a thin blue line. These are the people that if I'm in a bad situation, they're going to rush to be there to help me, to save my life, to, to protect me. So that kind of stuff just didn't really matter. I didn't look at a, a black cop and say, oh, he's a black guy. I just saw another cop. And, um, and so the interaction between police officers was very similar to what uh, I had uh, in the Marine Corps. But, you know, you had to be self-conscious as a police officer externally about how you interacted to make sure it didn't look bad. So that was a lot of disjointed thoughts, but I think I got my message out there and I'd like to hear what you think, Thomas. Yeah, I think I think the difference because I've been spending a lot of time thinking about this uh, because of that tweet that the New York Times reporter said that all white people should be killed or something like that. Um or she was suggesting that as a solution. I don't remember exactly what it was, but somebody dug up some racist tweets that she had back a long time ago. 
and she got you know a slap on the wrist from the New York Times and nothing or I don't even know if she got slapped on the wrist. I think she they were just like this doesn't represent her anymore. No consequences. And there was a lot of hubbub about that because it's like if that was reversed and she had said that about any other ethnicity. You know, she would have been tarred and feather and run out on a rail, you know, in public opinion, kind of like what happened to Roseanne and what happens, you know, periodically to people who say something racist. And and I was kind of pondering this and it's like, why doesn't it bother me more? Because from a like a purely justice, like equity, you it, it seems like you'd want the rule applied evenly across the board. And I guess what makes it different is the power differential. Uh, so there's a, you know, white people have a history of lynching black people in America. And it's it's funny because like the 1950s are seen as this like terrible time of lynchings. But actually, that was like the lowest point of lynchings in the like 70 years leading up to that. So I saw some statistics of lynchings and like there was like 10,000 lynchings in 1890 or 1900 that decade. Like it's just a huge number. And it went down every decade until 1950. It was really, really low. But at that point the few that did happen uh, were brought to the public consciousness in a way where people who didn't realize it was happening, people who weren't in the South just got really horrified. Uh, but there's still that history in that, in that power differential that when you're wearing that uniform, when you're wearing that badge, you have the full force of the United States government behind you, right? If, if the, if you get into a tussle with somebody and you get shot, that's not where it ends. The force of the government pursues that person and you're, you become a representation of something else. And after a while, it's not really about you, the individual. And we see this with this most recent uh, police beating in Baltimore. The cop was a African-American cop and he was punching an African-American man. And so he's like, you can't really say that this is racism of like some white man beating a black man, but it's still that like the force of the United States government and they have this uh, distrust. And I feel like it's rightfully so, you know, why is Oklahoma so libertarian and has so little trust of the government and they always vote for as little government as possible. Like, I don't know, maybe because it used to be an Indian reservation and they're like, maybe we don't trust the government quite as much as the rest of you people. And we have good reason for that. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. And I, so I, but going back to the whole, like, when when you say something racist, or if you were to say something racist to this man who's in the back of your uh, police car, there's power there because of your gun, because of your badge, and because of the institution that you represent. Whereas when he says it, there's no power there. There's no ability for him to act on his words. And I think that that does change the words to a degree. Uh, there's this concept in other states of assault and battery. And assault can be threatening words or making a threatening action. You don't actually have to lay hands on somebody for it to be assault. You have to lay hands on somebody for it to be battery. We don't have that distinction here, but I do feel like there is more threat when you're wearing a badge, when you're wearing a gun. And that's why you're held up to a higher standard, even though potentially it's not a fair standard, right? The, the fair standard is no one should say racist things to anyone for any reason, but I do think that the power differential has to be taken into account when kind of looking at these things. This is, I'm kind of evolving on this. This is like new thoughts for me. Um, but, uh, what, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think we're all evolving on this. Um, I think, you know, whether we think it's right, whether we think it's wrong, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a national, it's an evolution of the national consciousness. Um, a, in a large part, it's it's an evolution of national consciousness on race, and I think we're we're once again 
hashing this out in the context of, of today. I think we were kind of largely asleep on it for a, a few decades there after the great civil rights era and, and it's come back around, you know, and in the context of today, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I think we're going through a lot of, a lot of pain on that. Um, and I think the big context there and the catalyst was Ferguson. And I think the big context there is, you know, the way, the way that, that you know, or even just the perception of the way that the government has treated minorities in the past, you know, what's right, what's wrong, have we gotten better? Um, I think that's the perception of the of, of, of the problem that we're discussing right now. And you know, you have one side of the aisle that's saying, no, this is ridiculous. That uh, they uh, people of color have never had it better. Uh, and then you have you know the other side, which is I've, I've been impressed by or I've been they've been impressed their entire lives, whatever their 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 perspective is, and it needs to get better from here. And I'm sure that there's, I'm sure there's, there's a spectrum of truth for each individual circumstance. So are we, we're judging it, we're talking about it, nation as a whole, and we're bringing isolated incidents into the, to the national conversation and trying to uh, say that, uh, you know, this is proof one way or the other of the way cops act. And I think that just makes it more difficult because, you know, bringing anecdotal evidence into, into, into it is, is, is problematic. So, it's interesting. I, uh, I I heard about this Baltimore uh, police officer who who uh, started punching this this subject a, a couple days ago, and I, I kind of fleetingly saw the video. I kind of have to stop watching these videos because I get frustrated. Um, but I you brought up a fact that I hadn't really paid attention to, and that that the fact that the police officers on this uh, on the scene there are both black as well. So, you know, if and. From what I understand of Baltimore politics is a majority, if not the entirety of the Baltimore elected government are, are black. And it's a very, very, very black population. So, um, you know, now, now we're in that microcosm. I, I kind of, I start to get curious. Are we talking about the government versus people of color, specifically black people in this context? Or are we just talking about power? Versus, you know, the, the the old argument of the haves and the have-nots, the people in power versus the people without power, and I think there's a lot of that nested in there as well. So, I don't know. It's it's it's. it's I'm having a hard time verbalizing it here. It is simultaneously frustrating, and then as long as you can take a step back and look at it with an objective brain, it's also kind of fascinating in a, in, in a way. Um. It's it's frustrating in the fact that it it affects individuals across this nation, and, and, it's, and it's a frustrating thing for individuals across this nation. But uh, as a case study across the board, I think it's I think it's kind of interesting, and it'll be interesting to see where we go. Yeah, going back to Ferguson because that really was the flashpoint. Uh, you have to ask why were the protests in Ferguson so loud and so long? Because unarmed black men get shot all you know f- often and you don't typically see the protest this loud and this long uh, like we saw in ferguson and uh, people went in and kind of researching what's different about ferguson what's different about missouri and one of the things that they found and i think this is a really important point that people are not talking about is that the ferguson government raised a significant amount of its revenue not from taxes but from fines Fines that were levied disproportionately on the poor parts of the 
populace. So let's say you are driving and you uh, one of your taillights is burnt out. So you get a ticket and it's you know seventy five dollars, but you don't have seventy five dollars. So you get a, f- a fee of another three hundred dollars, and suddenly at the end of the and then it gets turned over to collections. And at the end of the day, by the time you've been able to resolve this, you paid five hundred dollars for this broken taillight. And when you're only making five hundred dollars a week, and you're all of that is going to you know food and housing like that broken tail and oh by the way you also lost your license in this process that keeps you from going to your job and now the job that was paying five hundred dollars a week you don't have that broken tail light because of the f- actions of the government has now destroyed your entire life in in this kind of scenario and it, it missouri and in ferguson especially from my understanding and I, i've heard some reporting on this this sort of thing was really bad like even worse than normal Ferguson was on one of the main highways and one of the main ways they would raise money is by giving, you know, ticky tacky little speeding tickets to everyone going up and down the highway. And they just saw it as a revenue generating engine. Um, not that cities in Texas ever do that, but I have noticed it's gotten better. It was way worse when I was a kid. Um, I, but that, you know, when you're a middle-class person and you have credit with a credit card that you can spend money and you get a hundred and $25 ticket, it's annoying and it makes you mad, but you pay it and you move on with your life. But if you do not have those $125 and none of your friends and family can put together the money to give you that $125, suddenly you're in jail. Like your life is spiraling out of control and the punishment suddenly is no longer fitting the crime. And I have a friend of mine, uh, Judge Edna Stout, who's a judge in Williamson County. And this is like her big issue. And she is like the reddest red Republican you will ever find. And yet she's like, this isn't just what we're doing to poor people who are getting these fines and the way that those fines are being handled in Texas is not just. And Texas is like a cakewalk compared to what was going on in Ferguson. And the people in Ferguson get angry at the police because they're the ones who are making the arrests. They're the ones who are enforcing the laws. But they're not the ones responsible for the laws. <laughs> they're not the ones who are getting the money from the laws. I mean, some of it is being funneled back to the police department, but this money is going to fund the whole apparatus of government and it's powerful middle class people and upper class people finding that they can reduce their taxes by making the poor pay more by making them pay fees instead of taxes. And uh, it was because of that pain that the Ferguson protests were so ferocious because this suffering was very real beyond the violence. The violence was that the police were having to use to keep the population compliant had to be so high because of these, uh, the strenuousness of these fines and the, um, impact of the you know pain on your life right you you don't pay the ticket you get a warrant out for your arrest i mean this these are like normal people who are having to go to jail because they're poor like it shouldn't be a crime to be poor and if you don't have the infrastructure people can get to their jobs without having a car i don't know i i just there's a lot of injustice here that's beyond cops beating people up and that's dramatic and it makes for good video and you know it's there's blood and if it bleeds it leads but it's not the problem. It's in, from my perspective, it's a symptom of a deeper problem of this kind of systemic racism, but really just systemic greed of people with money wanting to keep more of their money by making the people without money have to, to pay more. And that I think is if, if we address that, I think it will go a long way to improving the 
relations between the police and the uh, population. I was watching Andy Griffith with my wife. Uh, there's a couple uh, ones that she'd remembered watching as a kid where these hillbillies come in from out of the woods and they are uh, parked where they're not supposed to park and they're putting their hat in the water trough and that's against the rules. And Andy Griffith comes and gives them a warning. And I was like, man, if this were Ferguson, Missouri, they, they would just get a ticket because Andy Griffith is supposed to bring in money for the city of Mayberry. <laughs> and like suddenly these um, hillbillies are angry and the whole relationship and the dynamic has changed uh, because Andy's job in this kind of if he was alive today, is to bring in revenue instead of to enact justice. And I think that that really corrupts the purpose of what the police are there to do. Dustin, your thoughts? I'll tell you the perspective, on my perspective, and I, I can also say that uh, there's a lot of police officers that I speak to that have the same perspective. So I, I'm comfortable in saying that it's it's a pretty widely held view that you know police officers go into policing not because they want to be tax collectors, Police officers don't go into policing because, you know, they want to beat up on poor people. Police officers go into policing because, you know, we want to be the good guy. Uh, we we want to go out there and do good things. We want to rush in and, you know, get the bad guy and put the bad guy in jail and, and be everybody's hero. That's what police officers want. That's how we see ourselves. That's, that's how police officers see ourselves. Not as, not as this, you know, jackbooted government operative who's just out to get the individual citizen. That's not how police officers see themselves. Um, and that's not what drives people to the job. So a lot of people, police officers like, like me feel uh, that the government uses the police force as a patsy for political problems. Um, I think sometimes the city of Austin uses its police force as a patsy for political problems. So, for example, the laws that are always enforced by police officers are created by who? City ordinances are created by the city government. So you'll have these city politicians who will say that, you know, poor people shouldn't be prosecuted for laying down on the sidewalk. Homeless people shouldn't be prosecuted for this, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, make the make the sideways or sometimes the direct implication that the police officers are just being terrible people for enforcing these laws that the city council made. And it's the same thing for state legislatures. It's the same thing for the federal government. You know, police officers, you know, from the federal level all the way down to the individual level, they don't make the laws. They just enforce them. And a lot of times they're trained to do things a specific way. And they think that because they're trained to do it that way, that's the quote unquote correct way. So, um, you know, if you have people that are speeding, we go after speeders because the city council made the law. The city council is representative of the of the people and the people have spoken through their representatives and say speeding is a bad thing. It's uh, bad for the public safety. Um, and if you speed, we're going to uh, we're going to we're going to fine you for that. So um, I everything you said, it 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 was a really well verbalized way uh, that I hadn't thought of before, but it was kind of in the back of my mind. And uh, so just like I said before, it was just another way for me saying that you know, police departments really across the world, police, individual police officers, while there are individual police officers, of course, they're human beings, just like any other human being that's in, the, in this world. As institutions, police forces want to be the good guy, but they're charged with upholding the law. They don't make the law. So uh, I think it's very irresponsible for city governments and city elected officials to make patsies of their police forces uh, who are really just 
compositions of the citizenry. Police officers aren't imported from, you know, across the ocean. Uh, Police officers are members of the public. We are the public. We're not different from the public. So I guess that's just uh, for, for, for all of our audience out there who's listening. Just keep that in mind next time you run across a police officer, you know. They're just uh, they're just people going out there trying to do trying to be a good guy, trying to do their job, and just trying to go home at the end of the day. Uh, they're not uh, they're not individually out there on the backside, just uh, wishing to do evil deeds to do to people all day long. So, I think I got off on the sidetrack there, Thomas. So uh, your 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 last minute comments. I think that's a great place to end it. Uh, police officers are people too. Uh, this is a scary discussion to have, a scary topic to talk about as two white guys talking about race. Uh, and we'll, you know, I think we should visit this again. And we want to hear what you think. Uh, do you agree, disagree? Leave us a comment at libertybuzzard.com. Well, I'm Dustin Hammett. I'm Thomas Sumstat Jr. And you've been listening to Liberty Buzzard. <laughs> This episode of Liberty Buzzard is brought to you by Tom Umstadt CPA. Tom has over 35 years of experience helping people like you pay only their fair share in taxes. Don't let the IRS stress you out. Get Tom and his team on your team at TaxmanTom.com.